0: All right, let's do this. Peanut, if you're staying in the room, no talking. Hello, and welcome to the PhotoWork podcast, the talky and touchy-feely version of my book, PhotoWork, 40 Photographers on Process and Practice. I'm Sasha Wolf, as usual, of course. Of course I am. Joined also, as usual, by my friend and producer, a man for all seasons, every single one of them.
1: Especially summer? (laughs) No, not especially summer.
0: Um, And that's a film reference, everyone, so look it up. Just a little (laughs) Easter egg. Michael Chauvin-Dalton.
1: Hello, Michael. Hi. Uh, How you doing? I'm doing all right. You know, know what I wanted to ask you is... um, how are you doing? Because, you know, we, we had to skip that episode and, yeah. and, and, you know, for good reasons. You were really busy and I'm, you know, just wondering as how all that went. Um,
0: yeah, so I'm sorry about missing last episode's episode. <laughs> <laughs> I felt so bad about that um, because I know we formed this really lovely community of listeners and... Uh, We've said this many times that we get so many messages from people that are really moving to us, and so Mm -hmm. it was difficult to decide to not do an episode, but what's happening is that my work as an art dealer – I almost said art director, which is really bizarre, but anyway (laughs) – if I was in therapy, I would I would take that. Yeah, that's right. That, uh, <laughs> you might step. do a
1: little directing. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, my work as an art dealer, my that part of my life is almost back to, or maybe it even is back to pre-pandemic levels, and that's an incredibly, you know, normally hectic, mm-hmm. vibrant, exciting life and chock full. And now, during the pandemic, you know, I added a second job, which is being a podcast host. And as we've also mentioned before, it's a lot of work. And right. so I just couldn't do everything. And I, I do, you know, just want to say that you and I are sort of in the same boat. And you have mm-hmm. a full life and career. And then you have this. And you also have your other podcasts that you do. So, right. Our commitment is to keep doing this podcast, and I, I think we will, but where there might be some sort of pains trying to figure out how to make it all
1: work-hmm
0: But we have some really interesting guests coming up and I'm not going to say who because you know then sometimes it doesn't work out. but I'm pretty sure we have some pretty amazing guests and I've already you know I'm already up to my eyeballs in pre-interview prep for that mm-hmm. But today um, we have a conversation with the multi-talented Jason Fulford, who's a great photographer, a wonderful publisher. He has his own imprint, JNL Books, and he does has done some really fantastic stuff with Aperture. The most notable thus far was the Photographer's Playbook that he did with Greg Halpern, and his new book which he did on his own, is called Photo No-Nos. It just came out last week. So mm-hmm. it was just so fun talking to him.
1: Yeah, the conversation about the book is fantastic, and I don't want to give anything away about it, but if you think you know what this book is about, I would listen to the conversation, because I think you might be a little surprised. Yeah, and absolutely. And Jason has such an interesting mind in the way he speaks, and he, he, you know, he talks about having these different modes of creating work and just sort of living life and and they all have this equal value, whether it's editing or photographing or putting a book together, or even, you know, a good conversation with a neighbor, you know, he finds sort of equal value in all those things. And I, I, you know, I think that helps create a very rounded sort of uh, creative person, you know, being informed by different things and finding all those things uh, equally valuable. He also (laughs) talks about photographers in an interesting way as either sculptors or collectors, Uh, The idea that you're either sort of creating something out of whole cloth or you're you're seeing and you're taking in and you're collecting like you're at a yard sale.
0: Yeah, I think this is a really interesting conversation. I mean, I think he's Mm -hmm. just a very unique thinker. And so he's very sort of quiet and laid back in this interview. But there are all these just really beautiful little pearls that get scattered throughout the conversation. I mean, I knew it at the time i knew it in time as i was speaking to him but when i went back and listened to the edit i was like oh my god that's so beautiful and you know it was just really lovely to sort of take that in again uh yeah all right well why don't we get to it then so michael
1: if you don't mind please take it away my pleasure and here's your conversation with jason fulford
0: Jason Fulford, welcome to the Photo Work podcast. It's so awesome to have um, nabbed you.
2: Nice to talk to you, too.
0: You're a busy guy running all over the place, so I'm really thrilled that, uh, yeah, I think Aperture threw a like a dog catcher net over <laughs> you and gra- gra- <laughs> grabbed you from me. <laughs> We've got him. <laughs> so we have so much to talk about because you um, have a new book out with Aperture that is know super exciting but before we get to that let's let's do what we always do which is start off the show with some some bio stuff Mm -hmm. so if you can just give us background on your journey to to today
2: Uh, yeah well I was born in Atlanta Georgia and I actually started taking pictures when I was 11 Um, my mom would I guess she just tried to expose my sister and me to as much as possible to see what would stick And then the things that didn't resonate would drop off you know like piano lessons (laughs) but then you know things like photography really resonated for me and not my sister so i kept doing it and i also had a a photo program in my high school with an amazing teacher and so photography along with a lot of other things in my life just became one of the my tools for exploring the world you know so I applied for a, a Pratt uh, Institute in Brooklyn art school. Used to have a thing. I don't know if they still have it. It was called the National Talent Search. It was a so my photo teacher in high school would get everyone to apply for this. You know, also just practice and applying for things. So you send in twenty slides and write something, and uh, I ended up winning that. And it and the prize was a f- a full tuition. Uh, scholarship to Pratt for four years and um, I was supposed to go to business school according to my father (laughs) and uh, so this came out of the blue and I thought it over and I decided to go to business school instead and so then I went and told my photo teacher and he said get the fuck out of my office and it was just really jarring to hear him say that you know he didn't that's not how he normally talked and it really made me reconsider it so uh i ended up changing my mind because of that interaction and uh, i came to new york and you know i was exposed to so many things pratt pratt was great i studied with ann turin there Uh, i -hmm. studied most actually majored in graphic design which according to my dad had more job skills than mm-hmm. photography, maybe, true. maybe that's true. Um, but then I always uh, took photo classes um, because that's what I really loved. And then so I had a dark room all through college. And then New York itself was as, as much or more of an education for me as school. So after college I, I worked for a couple of years in a graphic design studio in Manhattan And um, until I just couldn't, I didn't want to be in an office, you know, and I felt constricted and I wanted to be out wandering uh, around the world. So I quit uh, my job and bought a motorcycle and just took off. And so my first big wandering trip was going down the Mississippi River. This was 1997 or something. So I drove from Brooklyn up into Minnesota. And then just followed the river down to New Orleans and then back up to Brooklyn. It took two and a half months or something. And I think that's around the time when my pictures started to feel, they started to coalesce into something that felt right, like fully right. Everything before that seemed disposable, like I was figuring it out, learning. And all of a sudden I wanted to, you know, I wanted to save these negatives. (laughs)
0: Mm Mm-hmm.
2: So, I haven't had a job since then, and uh, I spend, if I can, about half the year traveling and half the year at some sort of home base, you know, in Brooklyn and Scranton, Pennsylvania. Uh, you know, so many things in, in everybody's life, but, uh, but especially my life, have to do with these, like, competing extremes, you know, wanderlust versus a, a need to have a home, or, you know, emotion and logic, emotion and logic, <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. or
2: chaos and order. You know, I, th- I feel like a lot of things in my life tend to end up having the, that kind of like mixture of the of dichotomies. And that's what I find to be really rich.
0: That, that was such an abbreviated sort of rundown there because you've produced so much. And both as an artist um, I mean, I think everything you've done is artistic, so I put it under that umbrella. But let's say as a photographer, mm-hmm. but also as a publisher, um, you publish under J&L mm-hmm. Books, the imprint j Books, and you've done a couple, now two really uh, quite meaningful books for Aperture. One... I don't know if our audience will put this together or not. They probably all have it. But you, you did with Gregory Halpern, you did The Photographer's Playbook. Mm-hmm. Um, and your new book is called Photo Nonos. And it's sort of, I don't know what category you'd put those books under, sort of in the same category that my book Photo Work is under. And just for the record, the three books are exactly the same size and sort of meant to fit nicely on a bookshelf together. Mm-hmm. And I want to talk about Photo No-No's. It's amazing. I've had it now for the week. I got an early copy from Aperture. I've already, it's so, my copy is so banged up already and it hasn't even left my apartment. I love it.
2: Um, I love it when I find a book that I made that's totally destroyed.
0: (laughs) Okay, so I think you'd be shocked, but I've just been carrying it around with me and you and I were joking around before we started recording about sort of how hot our apartments Mm -hmm. are. And I was telling you, I only have keep the AC on in one room. And so I keep going in and out of that room. But I've been carrying your book around with me. And so it's just, it's logged a lot of miles already (laughs) just in my my apartment. But I have a million Post-it notes in it. I've already folded down a bunch of pages. And because I've been throwing it around, I've already dinged it up. But that to me is, that's a sign of love. Mm -hmm. So we will get to that but tell us tell tell everyone more about your life as a photographer and a publisher mm-hmm. and how those things sort of split off and, and where they where they stand now and when you travel now what are you traveling for mm-hmm. because your life is i know a lot it, travel is is just a, a really you know for some people it's an important part of their life as you said for you it makes up about half of your mm-hmm. time, and that that's pretty dramatic. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, I've I've said this before, but uh, I I usually think of photographers falling into generally into two categories. I say a collector and a sculptor. The sculptor type will like start from scratch and build something, set up a still life or set up a portrait, and then make the picture. And the collector type, which is more like me, is more like a um, like a yard sale shopper (laughs) and wandering around the world and taking things home you know I I want that I want that that and uh, so I've been that type of photographer since the beginning and when you really start to produce a lot of pictures that way then you you realize you need some process to deal with all of that unless you just want to be the type of person that has everything sitting under your bed for your whole life. (laughs) And so, through that, I became interested in editing. Also, I think I had a certain time in my life where I felt like there were way too many pictures out into the, in the world, and I got a little depressed about that. And then through editing, I started to realize that, you know, the way you put pictures together is just as important as what the pictures are. And it's also just as nuanced and just as surprising and just as much work as the gathering. So my life ended up taking this form of uh, collecting images, which I think of as vocabulary, and then editing, which is like writing. And so at this point, all of that is intertwined. It's not necessarily like today I'm collecting, tomorrow I'm editing. It it all happens Mm -hmm. together. And, you know, the the editing and writing part had to do with just wanting to participate. You know, I want to put... Things out into the dialogue with other people who have similar interests, and the back and forth and all of that is is all equal to me. And at a certain point in my life, that distinction between art and life has gotten completely blurred. You know, I think a conversation with my neighbor in Scranton is just as important as this this page on in photo Nonos. and so. I also have, have somehow picked up through my life that uh, there's different ways to use your brain at different times of the day even. <laughs> and um, I like to k- sort of keep switching it up. So, you know, there's there's times when you're more analytical and then there's times when you're more emotional. And uh, there's times when you need to, to gather and, and take in content and then times when you need to produce. And so all of my work with photography is sort of bouncing around between these different modes. It's making writing, uh, publishing other artists, you know gathering asking other people questions, uh, mentoring younger photographers and it's all it's all intertwined. I will say that the the photographer's playbook in photo Nono's fills a little bit of a hole for me, which is, Uh, related to community and I think a lot of people listening can probably relate to this probably went to art school and had a lot of communal time like in the dark room or in the studio with other photographers and I used to spend a lot of time in my own dark room and in dark rooms in the city and when you're waiting for prints to come out or whatever you're talking with other photographers and exchanging stories and you're all doing it for different reasons you know, some people are journalists, others are, like, poets, and others are comedians. And that, to me, was always really important, just to hear other perspectives and and know about them, and, and then, you know, incorporate certain things into your own life and practice. So for me, the, making these books was an excuse for me to have those conversations with people and then to share them with other people.
0: Do you feel like... I mean, one thing I'm just curious. I don't want to get too in the weeds on this, but you know, I spend a bunch of time on your website. You have two websites. You have the website for your photography, and you have a website for J and L Books. Mm-hmm. I I did find that the website for your own personal work is is not that forthcoming. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, you don't make it easy to see the work. First of all. Things are basically in book form. So you're showing a picture of a book you made Mm -hmm. of your work, not a portfolio of images. And when you click on the book, it takes you to another site, usually of whoever published the Mm -hmm. book. Why is it difficult to see your your work, your pictures?
2: Well, I think that the ideas are, are nuanced. And I think the context is important to understand that. So, like, with the books, I basically want to just channel people towards where they can get it. get the book, and then you spend time with the book and that's it's difficult to translate what the book does in an in a form that's not the book itself. Mm-hmm. Um, you know it's like if you asked a novelist to make a picture to describe their novel, you know it's it's a different medium it's it's and you say, "Well, why don't you just read the novel <laughs> so I think for the books, that's probably the reason. There might be an, a, you know, an underlying psychological issue that I may or may not be able to articulate, but uh, just related to a longstanding feeling for me of not wanting to be pigeonholed. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I don't like labels, and and I know that I apply labels in life. It's just the way we organize information it's in our we brain. Yeah. Yeah. But I tra- always try to resist that, you know, and the coming back at me. And I think it's probably an impossible task, but uh, it's something that I do think about.
0: So is it safe to assume, based on what you just said, that you don't think of your photographs as being, how do I put this? I mean, is the artistic output, the images sequenced in a book, period, like not able to be sort of... Interacted with individually, or possibly on the walls of a gallery or exhibition space.
2: It's both. I think it leans towards the book, but I think there are some some of the pictures that that hold up either in the same way or in a different way on their own. In general, I think that pictures are ambiguous, individual pictures, and that the you know the meaning of the picture comes at the time it's received and in the context that it's received in. And that is always changing. So the, for the book for me at least fixes a certain context where there's a message and a, and a tone and a level of ambiguity that's, that's determined, you know, that's all determined by me as much as possible. <laughs> and then it goes over to the reader to, for the final you know, judgment.
0: I love that you use the word ambiguity and then determined. Yeah, I mean, it's funny because <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know what you're talking about is wanting to keep absolute control over the ambiguity um, mm-hmm. of the pictures. Or, of course, that's not actually what you're saying. But it's you want to keep control over over the. At least your initial in that moment idea of how the pictures should be received, and to your mind, that should have a certain ambiguity. Mm-hmm. But the real thing that's important in that is is not wanting to to give up that that control, which I understand, by the way, it's it's that's not hard to understand. Yeah, but it seems like that's really what's happened. I mean, you know, anyone who listens to this podcast knows that I. I tend to wind up boring into someone's psyche. But, you know, it feels – that feels really pronounced to me by how hard it is to look at your work mm-hmm. on your website. I mean it's just really interesting. It's like there's like a just an absolute stop sign. Um, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> <sighs> Sasha, whatever you were going to do, turn back. Yeah.
1: <laughs>
2: There's a lot of... Play by my rules. There's so many yeah. ways to think about that or talk about it. I mean, I really enjoy the constant back and forth between uh, control and letting go. I mean, when I teach workshops, we do a lot of back and forth between chance mechanisms and then reactions and decisions based on those. And uh, we always end up saying like that chance should be a part of your process, and if... If you use a chance mechanism and then you make a decision based on that that's that is your voice as much as something that you know you you think maybe completely came from your own initiation. Another thing somebody said to me once about uh, difficulty, and i don't i'm not necessi- I'm not trying to make it difficult, but maybe it just ends up being that way but uh th- sometimes when something is a little more difficult, your audience is it's just a better audience. It's an audience that goes through something to get to it and then is more engaged somehow.
0: Well, they're going to be more invested for sure. I mean, the people who aren't as invested will fall away. Mm -hmm. All right. So we'll take you off the couch. So (laughs) let's get to photo no-nos because it's just so fantastic. So why don't you just tell people, because it I don't know if either of us know if it's available yet. It was coming out I think the 1st of July, but it may have gotten hung up a bit in transport. But anyway, it's it's
2: you can order I it. I just heard this morning that it it landed in the Aperture warehouse today.
0: Okay, great. Great. So people can can get get on the Aperture um website and order it um and order the photographer's playbook if they don't have it. And if people listening to this don't have photo work, then they're really in trouble. <laughs> um, so so tell us all about the book.
2: So this is a, an idea that I started to talk about with friends a long time ago. Uh, when, when, I, when my friends and I would show each other work and critique each other's work, I- inevitably someone would say like, oh, I've taken that picture or, <laughs> yeah. And that which makes you feel really crappy or um, or they would say, you know, if it was an honest friend like, oh, that's a little too easy that that subject mm-hmm. matter and conversations like this. So it was part of the feedback uh, process of making and showing and talking about work. And it, it, at some point, I think my friend Mike Slack and I started to talk about like, I wonder if we should make a list of all the things that we're, we shouldn't take pictures of. And so we each made our own lists and they included a lot of things for me that like maybe seemed like images that had meta- potential for metaphor, like uh, a tarp over a car or something. But then the, that, that image never fully, it just seemed empty, like an, a real empty metaphor. So the pictures like that, shrubbery and uh, uh, palm trees silhouetted on the sky, things that were immediately photogenic. And then the picture didn't hold up as an interesting picture. It did, the picture didn't transcend the thing that it was taking a picture of. So off and on, I would have these conversations with friends. And normally, there were things that we would continue to photograph anyway and just hope that one of the pictures would be better than the, the bad versions. And um, several years ago, I, I was talking to Denise Wolfe, uh, my editor at Aperture, about this idea and thought maybe it would be fun to ask other photographers if they had lists like this so we decided to go ahead with this book and then as i started thinking more and more about it it really paralyzed me as a photographer i started second guessing every single picture before i would make it wow and i stopped shooting and it was awful it was like a curse so i went back to denise and was like "We let's kill this project it's it's uh I think it's a bad idea. And she said no problem, so we killed it. And then I got over this this feeling and I was able to somehow loosen up again and just keep shooting and you know you realize a lot of people say this, you know, make the picture first and deal with it later. You can always choose not to use mm-hmm. the picture. But why why censor yourself in the moment when you're feeling mm-hmm. it? I started using that philosophy. And, and then this idea became just interesting as something to talk about, something to think about. You know, why, why is something on your taboo list versus something else? And so I, I went back and said, would, would you guys rethink making this book again? And they said yes. So then we started it about a year and a half ago. And so I was reaching out to photographers Uh, some curators and writers, mostly photographers, asking about kind of just like, when do you say no to yourself? When do you censor yourself or what kinds of things do you avoid? Whether it's a subject matter or a way of shooting or even a way of being related to photography. And I made it really clear at the beginning, like this is not a dogmatic thing. We don't want to tell other photographers what we think they should do. This is about you yeah. and your life and your process. And most of the people I talked to initially would say like, well, I don't think anything is off the table. I don't, mm-hmm. and I would say, yeah, I agree. And most people agree, but you know, there are, there must be things that, uh, that you used to make pictures of and you stopped or you tried and failed and you haven't tried again. Or maybe it's something that you, you didn't used to take a picture of, but now you do. And then I would ask, uh, a lot of people would send back lists from, you know, three to 15 subjects, and then I would ask each one of them to write a little story or a memory or an anecdote about that, one of the things on their list. So in the end, uh, the book is organized alphabetically by subject matter, and there's over a thousand subjects. And then occasionally, usually, Once or twice per spread, uh, there will be a short text after one of them by one of the contributors.
0: So just to give an example, um, you know, one list is like children looking directly into the camera, children playing in water, spraying out fire hydrants, children unaccompanied by an adult. That's the one that then has some text after it. So there'll be these lists of things. Right. John Gossage has just had a one funny line about a cheese sandwich, but, you know, leading up to cheese sandwich, (laughs) we have, it's amazing that this is what leads up to cheese sandwich, censorship, centering the subject in the frame, chain link fences, changing your vision to meet the market, chaotic backgrounds, chauvinism, cheap shots, cheerleaders, and then we get to cheese sandwich, (laughs) and... and uh, John writes, I will photograph anything, the less promising, the better. I have, though, never taken a picture of a cheese <laughs> Yes. So that's John's <laughs> contribution. So, you know, just to make it clear to people, this book is really amazing, because the way people answer the question, you know, sort of runs the gamut from that sort of silly answer, and yet not, um, of John's, to just incredibly sort of thoughtful, longer text about just sort of the ethics of photographing someone, how complicated that is, to, you know, the limits we put on ourselves and how we learn to let those go. So it's really, there are a lot of just incredible um, meditations on, you know, personal development and confidence comes in a lot. And so I just want to give people, you know, an accurate sort of sense mm-hmm. of the book that, you know, it does run from sort of very specific to very sort of existential. Mm-hmm. And it's really beautiful and it's really fun to read. I used yesterday when we were talking, I, I think I said to you that it was very jaunty. You know, what I mean by that is like, it's just it has this energy in it that just keeps it moving. Like, it's just so easy to engage with. And, and just like the photographer's playbook and like my book, you can sort of bounce around and use the index to find your people and read, you know, the contributions of people that you feel particularly connected to. But the truth is, I started doing that and then I was like, nah, I'm just gonna start at the beginning. And I just, whether I knew who the person was or not, I, I just was really grateful and engaged by what most people had to say. So it's, it's really fantastic. So do you have any particular ones that you, I, I don't. I know you don't want to choose favorite uh, children here, but any that are worth sort of reading out to people? I mean, I, I have some I can do if, if, if you don't want yeah, to. Yeah,
2: but... there, there's so many things that I love in this book. Um, sometimes it's interesting when you have two pieces that are the opposites. You know, like someone oh, yeah, someone said yep. they avoid having the subject look directly into the camera. And then uh, Alessandra Sanguinetti uh, avoids when the, the thousand-yard stare, you know, away from the camera.
0: Mm-hmm. Yep.
2: Or like uh, Peter Funk, for example, used to take a lot of pictures out the window of an airplane. And then he he stopped making them once it seemed like airplane travel was not a good responsible thing to do, uh, thinking about climate change. So all of a sudden yep. these pictures didn't feel good to him anymore. Whereas mm-hmm. um, maybe a photographer like Erica Demon would. she never made self-portraits, but all of a sudden this year in COVID, it seemed like the right time to do that. So I love it when, you know, someone used to do something and then stops or then some, the opposite, someone never did something and all of a sudden they do. Like this idea of you make, these rules, but then they can be changed if the timing is right. Also, some of this nuanced pieces are in, really interesting, like Coralie Kraft, who's a photo editor at The New Yorker, talks about the difference between truth and accuracy. So uh, as an editor working on a news story, a picture comes back that is something that actually happened at the scene uh, of the event, but maybe it doesn't. Really, paint the the right picture of the event as a whole. So she has to determine, as an editor, if that I- is appropriate or not for that piece. Mm-hmm. There's a a lot of different people who wrote about exploitative types of pictures. Yeah, from uh, S- Sina Nasiri talking about, uh, you know, a moment of true heartbreak and grief that you witnessed. Do you, do you photograph it or mm-hmm. not? And then he gave us a picture, there's some images in the book too. I asked people if they had like an exception to the rule, like something, a picture they made that they liked of one of the topics on their list. So he has a picture he made of a a scene in a parking lot in San Francisco of a man dropping off his sick dog onto a stretcher with a, a nurse and they're all sitting down and the dog is laying down. And the dog is actually making eye contact with him, with the camera. And it's something that he walked by and was like thinking like, you know, damn, I want to take that picture, but I can't. And then he just turned around and made it. <laughs> or uh, Dana Singer talks about meeting a woman in a, in a hotel room hallway in the middle of the night who was a junkie visiting her, um, yeah. her dealer. And uh, they talked and she made some pictures of her. And were, she had a, like a large part of her calf muscle and one of her legs was missing. And she decided to not show that in the picture because it seemed excessive and it, it wasn't necessary for the picture to be what it needed to be. Chris Farine talks about uh, avoiding anything sexy for a long time. <laughs> in his work, Mm -hmm. until he found a way to sort of empower the subject. And now he embraces that. You know, so the book is focused on negatives, you know, like, no, when do I say no? What what do I avoid? But a lot of times, just when you articulate that, it highlights the reason you're motivated to make pictures, you know? So I really think of this book as a a positive thing.
0: Oh, definitely. I agree. I'll just read one that is the contribution of someone that a lot of people listening to this podcast will know, and I I think it's really lovely. So, Um, And it's Alec Soth's contribution. So it's under the heading cemeteries. And Alec writes, like many beginning photographers, I took some of my first pictures in cemeteries. But as my photography became more sophisticated, cemeteries joined railroad tracks abandoned buildings, and sunsets on the list of forbidden cliches. Discussing this with my photographer friends, Ed Pinar and Melissa Cantanese in Pittsburgh, Ed told me he still regularly photographs in cemeteries. Ed is so not cynical, Melissa said. The idea that something is cliche just doesn't occur to him. He doesn't have a cynical gene in him. Ed is the single happiest photographer I've (laughs) (laughs) ever... Ed is the single happiest photographer I've ever met. Wanting a little bit of that to rub off on me, I asked him if he'd take me to a cemetery. It was nearly sunset, and he led me to a bluffside cemetery near his home. He pointed to a particular spot where he's made a number of pictures. I couldn't imagine photographing in the same spot. Everything was too spectacular. But after setting up my camera and looking through the ground glass, I realized why Ed was so happy.
1: Uh-huh.
0: <laughs> So, I think that's a great example of the way, even though the book is called Photo No No's, it is not a um, negative book and, and not a cynical book. Mm-hmm. It's really beautiful and is filled with contributions in that vein. I know both Ed and Melissa as well, and so that <laughs> is particularly endearing. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, there there are just so many of these. Um, and I think you know, there are ones, look, there's there're ones that are sort of more what's the right word? Sort of theoretical. there's some that are a little bit denser. And then some people are really able to put, you know, sort of complex concepts in very plain and wonderful to the point language. and And one of those that I love, is by Erin O'Toole, who's Curator of Photography at SF MoMA. And and she wrote under the heading, Dogs. And I'm going to, people, this is like bedtime reading with Sasha Wolf. I'm I'm going (laughs) to just read, read this one also. It's my job as a curator to be discerning about what I see. I mostly trust my eye, but my critical faculties often fail me when it comes to photographs with dogs in them. I can so relate to this. For all the pictures of canines by Elliot Erwitt, William Wegman, or Peter Hujar that I know are great, there are others that I struggle to assess. Do I respond positively to a given photograph simply because there's an adorable pooch in it or because it is a good picture? Sometimes I'm not sure. Since I know that dogs short-circuit my judgment, however, I can ask people I trust for their opinions to check mine. A bias for photographs of dogs is, of course, a relatively benign, if not ridiculous, predilection. But it reminds me to be aware of other preferences I may have that are potentially more insidious and of which I might be less aware. Like a good photographer, I must rigorously interrogate why I gravitate to one kind of picture over another or why I am partial to certain types of subject matter and not others. If I neglect to question my choices, I risk potentially perpetuating stereotypes, favoring artists or subjects who look like me, or upholding established inequities. Mm-hmm. So I think that's fantastic.
2: You know, these stories, they give you a, an idea of how this person thinks. And and that's really interesting information to hear from a curator as a photographer. Mm-hmm. You know, you go, oh, right. I, if you're in that position, that's like... A, a real thing that you need to deal with. I mean, it relates to photographers as well, but there's one conceptual piece that I really love. Uh, It's by Keisha Scarville, it's called Wholeness. And uh, I'll just read it, it's one paragraph. She says, in defense of fragmentation and of the image that refuses to be held, I'm not interested in wholeness. For me, to photograph is to capture fragments, to be in conversation with the impossibility of completeness. An image is activated by breaks and fissures. I look to build images in which something is withheld and the edges reside in an indelible yearning. Photography does not make things whole, but accentuates the fragmentation of life and existence. The nature of the image is incomplete. We give it wholeness.
0: That's yeah, nice. Yeah, it's also an example of, you know, what you were saying earlier about sort of, you know, all the different, sort of modus operandi people have for making work and how they think about making work and how it's okay that people may have polarizing ideas about Mm
2: -hmm.
0: what makes work important or because someone may have an extremely different view to the one you just read. And I think there's like, you know, Tim Davis, I think, if I remember correctly, is sort of an anti-abstraction if I'm remembering that correctly, Mm -hmm. his contribution. And then there are other people and there's, there's anyway, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's... Like Alejandro
2: Cartagena is getting into abstraction now.
0: Right. Yes. Yep. And it's all fine. I mean, it's all okay. I mean, this is just everyone's personal sort of journey. And I think we're all really lucky to, I think we'd all agree, it's nice to have Lots of different types of work in the world. Yeah. We don't want there to be one way of doing things. Yeah. <laughs> be- for
2: example, Daniel Bowman talks about uh, she doesn't photograph people without asking their permission. But then Mark mm-hmm. Cohen says he never asks permission because uh, once you start that dialogue, this moment of what he calls this tiny bit of camera-generated hostility <laughs> it disappears, and that's what makes the picture interesting for him.
0: Yep. Yeah, I mean, I look, I represent Danielle Bowman. And I also represent, well, I represent Gus Powell, who's basically a street photographer and not asking permission. And I represent Peter K. Office, who was also on the show as Danielle was, and who also is making, you know, run and gun work and, and, and not stopping and asking for permission. But yeah, I mean, and, and all these people's work is very different. And as someone who works with the work, I'm I feel grateful for that, for those differences Mm -hmm. Um, and how they express, at least to these people are right now, different souls with, with, you know, at different places in their life and with different ways of seeing the world and how they want to express themselves and then offer that to us, the viewer. Mm -hmm. And it's really beautiful. Well, anything else about that that we haven't talked about 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 the new book that you want folks to know? Well,
2: I hope that it's a book that you can keep on your se- shelf for a long time and you know, you don't you don't have to read the whole thing. It's not a novel. You don't have to just sit down and read the whole thing. It's it's more like it I mean, it's literally set up like a like a dictionary <laughs> alphabetically. <laughs> and you can mm-hmm. jump in anywhere and you know, you never know when something will resonate for you or not. And uh, I think it's, I wouldn't say timeless, but I think it will be relevant for a long time, this content.
0: Yeah, I, I i think it's pretty timeless. Although there, I can't remember who it was. There is one contribution about coming to grips with cell phones mm-hmm. and people being on cell phones. Yeah, Ed Templeton. That's, that's pretty funny. Right, yeah. Um, Ed having to sort of give in to this, um, fighting the... Reality of the role cell phones mm-hmm. play in our lives. Um, before we sign off, I do just want to ask you because we didn't really get into it: Are you still publishing books and under JNL? Yeah. And if so, what are you sort of looking for, and how how do those come about? Those projects.
2: In general, it's just projects that I come across that are interesting and unique, and the artist has a has a strong voice and maybe a mix of uh, a mix of humor and seriousness and some sort of sensibility that resonates. One of the things that I appreciate in, in art and literature and music and film is when the artist takes a really complicated idea and condenses it down or refines it into the simplest possible form. I really, really respect that. And I try to do that whenever I make something, whether it's my own photographs or books of my own work, or if I'm working with another artist on their work, or something like this book. I think sometimes it can, on the surface level, it can appear very simple, but that's just the entry point. And what happens under that, it's like, I think of it like a PDF or like a recipe or like a seed you know, then it unfolds into something hopefully more profound and complex.
0: I obviously really respond to that, right? I mean, that I did that with photo work. I mean, the questions are really simple. Mm-hmm. And they were, and I asked the contributors not to write back with a bunch of, you know, art speak, but to just speak very plainly. And, you know, I didn't want there to be any barriers for people to receive the concepts the wisdom from the contributors then the people on the receiving end can add as much sort of complexity and nuance right mm-hmm. like you have to assume that that's happening on the other end so if i'm understanding you correctly it's like you're giving the the person receiving the information credit, and which you should, that, that they're going to take this and by adding their own intelligence and life experience and the way in which they relate to it, well, then the, the thing blossoms further. Is that, is that sort of what you're
2: exactly thinking? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, my worst nightmare is a passive audience.
0: Mm-hmm. See, for me, my worst nightmare is pushing my audience away. I mean, and I have this even when I talk to clients. It's like when they ask me to talk to them about, you know, work I want them to look at or work they're interested in, but they may not totally, you know, I work with a lot of people who are new to collecting photography, mm-hmm. you know, and it's really important to me to make sure that the words that I use are, draw them in and in no way push them away. Mm-hmm. And, and then of course, yes, leave room for everything to blossom in their head, right? So, you know, not telling them what to think, obviously, but also, you know, not loading them down with jargon or anything else that might alienate them. Mm-hmm. And so I'm a really big believer in setting the right conditions for the person on the receiving end to, to, to receive and then, you know, like a, a good... Um, you know wide receiver and football take the ball and run it down the field mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> i'm just c- totally curious but when you just sort of set up that thought you mentioned film are there films uh, movies that you know you sort of think of in this vein that really resonate with you
2: well this last year is i've watched a movie almost every night definitely mm-hmm. for the last year and a half and I've been watching the Criterion collection online and uh-huh. they've just been doing such a great job of every yep. few weeks, they, they all of a sudden it's like, oh, here's all the, the Czech new wave films. Oh, here's all the Australian. Mm-hmm. So I've been learning a lot about filmmakers I didn't know of before. Some couple of my top favorite films would be Stroshik by uh, Werner Herzog. Mm -hmm. It's hilarious and also totally heartbreaking (laughs) at the same time. Or uh, Nashville, Robert Altman, Mm
0: -hmm.
2: uh, you know, five conversations happening simultaneously. Yeah,
0: people should obviously know Werner Herzog and uh, Robert Altman. You make me want to go back and I haven't seen Nashville in years. I actually forgot I wanted to do a uh, Robert Altman sort of retrospective months ago. So I've got to get to that.
2: There is one film that I watched about 75 times during the last year. And it's a short film by Pasolini. It's 30 minutes long and it's called La Ricotta.
0: Oh, I haven't seen it.
2: And it is just incredible. It's like if secretly I really want to make movies. And um, (laughs) then I watch this and I think, well, he did it. You know, that's the movie I wanted to make. (laughs) It's... Just so great, and it's and it does the thing I mentioned earlier about having so many layers. Like there's a surface layer that's just it's almost fun, and then there are all of these under layers that are really intense, having to do with religion and society and um, and hypocrisy and stuff. But then the the music is great in it too. Like it's it it juxtaposes all of those things, which is something that I hope this book does too. You know, you I've been through. A lot of things in in life, and you know, there's a day when your mom dies, and then you and then you see something funny, you know, and then you mm-hmm. and then you eat uh, eat something that tastes really good, and all of that is gets mixed together. And uh, I hope the book does that. I think it almost does that on every page because it's so random what you'll see juxtaposed with another thing. And I think that that is really true to what life experiences.
0: Well, I couldn't agree more um, and it's a lovely concept and um, so why don't we stop there? Yeah. Jason, thank you so much for hanging out and, and being on the show and everyone, uh, of course, go buy Photo Nonos by Jason Fulford, published by Aperture and um, yeah, until next time. So thanks so much, Jason. Thank you,
2: Sasha. Nice talking with you.
0: Yep, you as well. Bye.
2: Bye. Photo Work with Sasha Wolf is produced
1: by me, Michael Chauvin-Dalton of Real Photo Show. The executive producer is Sasha Wolf, and our theme music is by Jay Walter Hawks. You can hear Photo Work on all your favorite podcast platforms. Please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify, and be sure to subscribe on any one of those services or wherever you listen to podcasts.